So Shalom, I wasn't able to give the class this week at the Lighthouse Project because I was uh, at a wedding. So I'm recording this and sharing this with all you out there from my office. Um, I do want to mention that at this moment I am posting a link to the handout for people to see. Um, it's right there. You can uh, click on it. You'll see over there the handout that we're going to be using in this week's class. Um, so, title, does God ever say no to a prayer? We pray to God, does God ever say no? I heard what you said, I heard what you asked, the answer is no. Um, some people say we pray for what we want and God gives us what we need, okay. Often we thank God for not giving us what we pray for, realizing what a mistake that would have been. Okay. Others say, be careful for what you pray, lest you receive it. Okay. Well, what is the truth about prayer? Is prayer a shot in the dark? Or is prayer an absolute practice that always works? That's the question we're asking here. So. Here is the Jewish counterintuitive fact. Prayer always works and is always answered with a yes. The teaching brings a proof from, from this law. And you have it here in your handout. If you click on it in the notes, in the uh, comments, you'll see it. So you'll see that there is an interesting law. I quoted to you the verse actually from the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shall not take God's name in vain. Um, I quote you a Talmud here that says that making a prayer or making a blessing, I'm sorry, making a blessing that isn't needed is called saying God's name in vain. Because we say, Baruch Atah, blessed are you, we say God's name. Um, what's called making a blessing in vain? For example, if you're going to make a blessing on food, but you don't eat food, that's a blessing in vain. So there is an argument. Some say that the verse from the Ten Commandments is taken literally, and it's a biblical prohibition to make a blessing in vain. Others say, no, it's rabbinical. However, they're bringing the verse just as a support to lean on. But either way, it is prohibited to say a blessing in vain. So from that perspective, what happens in the Amida? So the Amida is a prayer in which we make 13 blessings asking God for something and then closing it with a thank you. Blessed are you who does this. Let's take an example, okay? Blessing number eight, I'm going to read it for you. Heal us, O Lord, and we will be healed. Heal, uh, help us and we will be saved. For you are our praise. Grant complete cure and healing to all our wounds. For you, almighty King, are a faithful and merciful healer. Blessed are you, Lord, who heals the sick of his people Israel. Now, if after that opening request, it wouldn't happen, we wouldn't experience being healed, then actually the closing of the blessing, blessed are you, Lord, who heals the sick of his people, Israel, would be making a blessing in vain, just like making the blessing hamotzi without eating bread. So, therefore, the teaching concludes, 
It is impossible that our sages set us up to make 13 blessings three times a day in vain. If the sages were not absolutely sure that every blessing is answered with a resounding yes, then we would not be able to make any of these blessings. Thus, we now know that according to Jewish belief, every single prayer is answered yes. Now we're going to explore in this lecture precisely how God answers each and every one of our prayers. Hmm. That's amazing. Most of us pray and we just like, okay, maybe God will say yes this time. That's, that's not the way Jews pray. This lecture is based on a mimer, mystical teaching of the Rebbe, delivered on this Shabbos in 1965 in which the Rebbe explains Jacob's wanting to reveal to his sons when Mashiach will come and the divine presence lifting withdrew from Jacob, causing Jacob to speak of other things instead. That's what we're going to explore here. Based on that, we're going to understand how God always answers yes to every single prayer from every single Jew. Okay, introduction. In this week's Torah portion, the verse states, I'm quoting to you the verse now, Jacob called his sons and said, gather and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. That's what Jacob said to his sons right before he passed away. What does Rashi say? What does it mean, tell you what will happen at the end of days? Rashi says, he attempted to reveal the end, but the Shekhinah, divine presence, withdrew from him so he began to say other things. Simply speaking, he requested to be able to do something and give something and reveal something to his children, plan something within his children, and God said no. However, the Zohar states, volume 1, page 43, column 1, the requests of the righteous do not return empty. It's a ruling from the Zohar. Thus, we must say that Jacob's attempt, his want, and his prayer to reveal when Mashiach will come was fulfilled. How do you figure? That's not what Rashi says. The verse goes on to say other things that he said. I also want to add on that while the Zohar speaks specifically of the righteous, prayers of the righteous, nevertheless, the first teaching I quoted refers to the prayer for every single Jew. No Jew, not only the righteous, no Jew is allowed to make a blessing in vain, and no sage would have set up for the non-righteous to make blessings in vain, number one. Number two, there's a verse from Isaiah that the Rebbe of blessed memory would always quote, and that is, kulam tzadikim, and your people are all righteous. It is also fascinating to note a responsa, and you have the Hebrew um, copy of the responsa from Rabbi Moshe Schreiber known as the Hassam Sofer and he explains when uh, they asked a Rebbe praying on our behalf if someone asks a Rebbe, a righteous person can you please pray for me here's my, pray for me, here's my name, here's my mother's name and uh, the question is are you allowed to do that because the verse clearly says that you must call unto God without enter any intermediates so are you allowed to ask an intermediate, quote-unquote, a Rebbe, a Tzaddik, to pray on your behalf? He was asked that question, and he answers the following. 
He says that the Jewish people are one full body. And thus, when one Jew prays for another, it's not one person praying for another. It's one part of the body praying for another part of the body. And that's not called using a middleman. He says how much more so when we talk about a Rebbe, a Tzaddik, a Talmud Chacham, which is called a head, which basically means that when I ask a Rebbe, a Tzaddik, to please pray for me, it's like an organ asking the brain, please help me out. And that's not a problem. Thus, the prayer of a Tzaddik, a Talmud Chacham, a righteous person, is the prayer of the entire Jewish people. Okay, now let's begin the lecture. So the question here, let's stay focused. The question here is, does God ever say no to a prayer? Has God ever answered a prayer? No, sorry, can't do. Or God can't say can't do, but won't do. So we're going to go through some mystical concepts, three mystical concepts, and with it we're going to understand the practical way how to pray to always get a yes answer. Number one, three terms of saying in the Torah. Number two, external heart versus internal heart. Number three, physically but encompassing. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So let's talk about this. There are three different terminologies in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, for the word say. One is va'agida. Let's talk about this. You have here the concept in which the Zohar says, I'm sorry, back up. Whoa, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Whoa, sorry. There are three terms in the Torah for say. One term is Oymer, for example, Vayomer Hashem al Moshe, and God said to Moses. Another one is said is Daber, Vayedaber Hashem el Moshe Lema, which means speak. So Vayomer is say, Vayedaber is speak. And then you have Vayagid, Hagoda, which means to tell. Based on these three terminologies, the Zohar gives a fascinating rule. Let me read it to you. It's in volume one, page 249, column A. Whenever the word Haggadah is used, it refers to words of wisdom. Milin v'chachmisa. Now let's go back to our verse. And Yaakov wanted to say to his children, it says, Vayagida, and I will tell you, based on this, the Zohar says, that whenever we use the terminology of Haggadah, not Vayomer, not Vayidaber, but Vayagida, it means that we're transmitting words of wisdom. Before I bring to you the proof of the Zohar, I want to share with you the reason for the Zohar. The reason is that the word of Haggadah also means draw forth. This is a verse that says, Nahar Dinu Nogid, it means to draw forth. Now, what does that mean on a mystical level? In Zohar, that means that I am bringing forth wisdom, the first of the ten emanations, from its essence source, level A. Level B, it means, there's a verse that says, Magid Achris Mereshis Achris, draw forth from the first of the ten emanations, which is wisdom. To Rei Achris, the last of the emanations, the tenth emanations, which is Malchus, from which our world receives. So when we talk about the word Vayagidu, when we talk about telling, not saying, not speaking, but telling, 
we're talking about on a mystical term bringing forth from the essence of the infinite light into the ten nations primarily the first one wisdom and then from there the second level of drawing forth is from wisdom to kingship which is what is the recipient that gives to the creation gives to our physical world okay so now let's talk about the proof of the zohar the proof of the zohar says from the verse with jacob our verse and he said ha'asifa gather va'agida and i will tell you and now the zohar has a very interesting focus the word agida once again turn to the handout that you'll find in the links and i'll show it to you here on screen va'agida the hebrew letters has in the middle a gimel, a yud, and a dalid. Gimel dalid, our sages tell us, stands for gomel dalim, giving to the poor. Now, those letters, those central letters of the word va'agida, gimel, yud, dalid. Gimel represents the giver. Dalid represents the receiver. Yud represents the transmitting em emanation of the, gither, of the giver. Thus you have giver, gimel, yud is the transmitting of the giver going to dalid, the receiver. That is how the Zohar explains it. Gimel is the giver which would represent wisdom. That's the top giver of the ten emanations. Dalid represents Malchut, just as the moon has no light of its own. It needs to reflect the light of the sun. It's the receiver. And Yud represents the attribute, the emanation of Yisod, commitment, transmission. Okay. Now, thus we see that the terminology Va'agida is what drives the Zohar to say that Jacob and all terminologies of Haggadah is a transmission of milin de chokhmisa, an internal essence transmission. Words of wisdom. Okay, how do we know that it's about Mashiach? Rashi said he wanted to say what the days of Mashiach is. Well, the Zohar just says that it's words of, of wisdom. The Zohar just says it's a giving of an inner essence. But that doesn't necessarily mean about Mashiach. Let's go to the next, the next mystical concept. To understand this, we need to turn to the three ver terms that we said. Oimer, say, Daber, speak, and Haggadah, tell. Let's look at the difference. The word Daber, speak, there's an interesting teaching that says a person could be Echod Bepeh, He's saying one thing, but his heart means another thing. When it talks about Amira, to say, well, here our sages say Amira Belev. You could have a saying from the heart. However, in the heart, there's two dimensions. There's the external heart, the external will, and then there's the internal heart, the inner heart, the inner will. For example, Maimonides says, very interesting, and again you can turn to your handout page two if you're able to open it and print it out, and I'm going to share with you a very powerful law of Maimonides. 
and it's in the laws of Jewish divorce. When a man whom the law requires to be compelled to divorce his wife does not desire to divorce her, this is a prohibited marriage. Um, any examples, one that's famous, a Kohen who married a divorced woman, uh, that's prohibited. Um, a Jew that marries an illegitimate um, child. Um, so in those cases, the court would tell him you have to divorce. Now, the problem is that a man has to give the divorce willingly. So they say as follows, listen to this law. The court should have him beaten until he consents, at which time they should have a get written. The get is acceptable. Wow. So I'm beating you up until you say I want, and we're considering that I want. Rambam is going to explain this. Why is this get not void? For he is being compelled to divorce against his will. And a get, Jewish word, Jewish divorce contract, get, must be given voluntarily. Listen to this. Because the concept of being compelled against one will applies only when speaking about a person who is being compelled and forced to do something that the Torah does not obligate him to do. For example, a person who was beaten until he consented to, do, to a sale or to give a present. If, however, a person's evil inclination presses him to negate the observance of a mitzvah or commit a transgression, and he was beaten until he performed the action he was obligated to perform, or he disassociated himself from the forbidden action, he is not considered to have been forced against his will. On the contrary, it is he himself who is forcing his own conduct to become debased. In conclusion, Maimonides writes, With regard to this person who outwardly refuses to divorce his wife, he wants to be part of the Jewish people, and he wants to perform all the mitzvot and to heed all the transgressions. It is only his evil inclination that presses him. Therefore, when he is beaten until his evil inclination has been weakened and he consents to the divorce, he is considered to perform the divorce willfully. So one second, when he said, Amira, when he said, I don't want to divorce this woman, I love her. What are we saying? Obviously, we can see it comes from his heart. He really doesn't want to. However, it comes from his external heart, which is in conflict with his inner heart. Thus, we see that the word Daber and the word Amira, Oimer, speak and say, could be a transmission from the external heart, the external will, not the inner heart and the inner will. Not so with the word Haggadah, and that's what the Zohar is saying. This comes from the inner essence. When someone is experiencing Haggadah, he is transmitting from his inner essence. Thus, we now see that when he says the word Vayagidu, he was now going to transmit something from the inner essence. Let's take it to the next level. Even in Torah, there is something called Agadah. Very interesting. What is Agadah? Let me read to you the translation. The portion of the Talmud and Medrash which contains homiletic expositions of the Bible, parables, stories, maxims, in, contra in contradistinction to halakha. So the Talmud has laws, extrapolation, the methodology of how we get a law from a verse. 
Okay, that's one part of the Talmud. There's another part of the Talmud called Agadata, Agada. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's a book called Ein Yaakov, which pulls out all those beautiful stories and moral teachings of the Talmud. Now, here's something interesting that our sages say, and I quote to you. For most of the secrets of the Torah are concealed in it. So even in the Torah, the Agadah, Vayagidu, is where the essence secrets are really kept. Now, follow this teaching. Thus, we now understand this teaching that comes from the Sifri in Deuteronomy, Akev chapter 11, verse 22. This is what the Medrash, the Sifri, says about it. And I quote, if you desire to know he who spoke and the world came into being, if you desire to know God, learn Agadah, for through it you will know the Holy One, blessed be he. The reason is, for within the interior of the Torah, the Haggadah transmission, not the external, but the interior, that's where you're going to have the experience of knowing God. Thus, the interior of the Torah, Chassidus, that is which is called Agada. It is drawn, Agida, the interior of the infinite light, blessed be he. Now we now understand that when Jacob told his sons, gather the Agida to you. I'm going to give you not just words of wisdom. I want to give you something that's drawn from the very essence. Jacob was referring to the ultimate words of wisdom the ultimate drawing forth, the essence source of the soul and the essence source of the essence existence of God through the study of the essence existence of the Torah, the inner dimension. Now I'm going to ask you one more time to go ahead and take out your handout if you have it and you'll see over there. I'm going to read to you, give me a B, follow with me for a moment, give me a moment. I'm going to read to you the closing laws of the entire 14 books of laws of Maimonides called Mishnah Torah. It's the last set of laws is about the laws of kings and their wars. And the last two chapters is specifically about Mashiach, who is going to be a king, and his war. So let me share with you what Maimonides says about the days of Mashiach. The sages and the prophets did not yearn for the messianic era in order to have dominion over the entire world, to rule over the Gentiles, to be exalted by the nations, or to eat, drink, and celebrate. Rather, they desired to be free, to involve themselves in Torah and wisdom without any pressure or disturbances. That's all they want Mashiach for, to be able to just do nothing more than study Torah and truly perceive. Follow the next law. In that era, there will be neither famine nor war, envy or competition, for good will flow in abundance, and all the delights will be freely available as dust. Okay, so we won't have to work for a living. The occupation of the entire world will be solely to know God. And now the last sentence. Therefore, the Jews will be great sages and know the hidden matters, interior, grasping the knowledge of their creator to know the essence of God according to the full extent of human potential as it states, and he quotes and closes with a word, the verse from Isaiah, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the ocean bed. So what is Mashiach all about? 
It is the ultimate va'agida. It is the ultimate drawing forth, giving from the ultimate essence source to the receiver. It is about revealing the essence of the soul, the essence of God, through studying the interior essence of the Torah. That's what Mashiach is all about. And that's how Rashi knows and our sages know that when Jacob used the word va'agida, He's about to give the ultimate words of wisdom, the ultimate expression, transmission from the essence. We now know that he was talking about nothing less than revealing to his sons, imbuing within them days of Mashiach. Okay. The question that remains for us in this lecture is that Rashi clearly tells us that Jacob wanted to, he attempted to, but what happened? The divine Shechina, the divine presence, the Shechina withdrew. It lifted from Jacob, and Jacob began to speak other things. Thus, we see that Jacob's request of what he wanted to transmit and what he wanted to reveal and give and embed, God said no, and he changed the topic. Jacob changed the topic. So to understand this, how can it be that God said no to Jacob's prayer when we just shared from the Zoha that no prayer of the righteous come back empty-handed? We quoted the law of not making a blessing in vain. So it's not just the righteous, but every Jew, every prayer, every blessing has to be fulfilled. How did God tell Jacob no? To understand this, we're going to need to go to the prayer and attempt of another Rebbe, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. Before Moses passed away in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prayed. Let me read to you the exact verse of the prayer. Pray, let me cross over and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, this good mountain and the Lebanon. So as you know, because Moses hit the rock, God told him, you won't bring the Jewish people into Israel. You won't enter Israel. Your disciple Joshua will do that. And you will be buried on Mount Nevo, in Mount Nevo, on the other side of the Jordan, never entering into, crossing the Jordan, entering into the ultimate motherland, um, Israel. Now, he's praying, let me see. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, Moses wasn't praying to see the land. Moses could have done that through prophecy. Moses could have done that through spiritual. I mean, he was up in heaven for 40 days and 40 nights, three times. Um, he could see it from there. What was Moses, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, trying to do? Moses, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, was trying to imbue within each and every one of us that our faith should not be as the abstract distant faith of, I hear what you're saying. Rather, Moses wanted to embed within every Jew, each and every one of us, that our faith and commitment in God should be absolute as one who sees, not hears. And thus, the verse says, please, please pray, let me cross over and see meaning that Moses wants to embed as the Rebbe, as the brain, the head of the Jewish people. Moses wanted to embed within each and every one of us 
an absolute faith and commitment, a tangible one, a practical one, not an abstract one that's distant and sometimes volatile. Now, let's go further. What happens in exactly five verses later? Moses says, and now, O Israel, hear to the statutes and to the judgments which I teach you to do in order that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your forefathers is giving you. Hmm. Moses was trying to do see. He was trying to embed with us the absolute faith. And obviously we see five verses later that God said, no, you'll embed within them the distant faith, the abstract faith of hearing, not of seeing. Thus, too, we find here that Moses prayed and God said no. By the way, Jacob and Moses in Zohar have a direct link. We say Jacob's from the outside, Moses is from the inside of the same emanation, the same spiritual embodiment. So, could it be that God told Moses no? Now let's get a look at what our sages teach us in the Kutta Torah, beginning of the Veschanan. That while Moses did not succeed in bringing the absolute faith of seeing into the internal conscious mind of each and every one of us, he absolutely succeeded in embedding within the encompassing subconscious mind of each and every one of us, which is precisely why you see that when we, any Jew, regardless of whether he considers or she considers himself secular, religious, and Hasidic, nah, every single Jew, at some point of the ultimate test throughout history, whether it be in the Spanish Inquisition, the Auto de Fe, or wherever it may have been, when a Jew is faced with the ultimate test, regardless of his level of observance prior to this test, he acts erratically and radically with absolute faith and commitment, totally contrary to maybe the lifestyle he was living up to then. Why? That's because of Moses. That's because Moses embedded within each and every one of us in our subconscious mind that we have an absolute sea commitment and faith in God. By the way, this is what Maimonides was talking about when he said with an absolute certainty that the internal will, the internal heart, the subconscious mind of every Jew, regardless of what he or she is saying to the contrary, is to be one with God. Because on that level, the Pintalayid in Spanish, Chispa de Judio, that eternal spark within the Jew is absolute faith of seeing, not just hearing. Now we can understand the precise wording of Rashi. I'm going to quote to you the Rashi once again. He attempted to reveal, Jacob, attempted to reveal the end. Days of Mashiach, but the Shekhinah, divine presence, withdrew from him, so he began to say other things. Here are three questions. A. Why does Rashi say the Shekhinah withdrew from him? If God was saying no to Jacob, he could have just said, No, I don't want you to do that. 
without withdrawing. Why does it say the Shekhinah withdrew? Question number one. B. What Yaakov goes on to say, as you'll see in the Torah portion, he goes on to give prophecy about each and every one of his sons, what will happen in the offspring in future generations. Now prophecy demands the presence of God to be with you. So obviously God did not withdraw from him, withdraw from him because God's presence was with him, giving him prophecy. And lastly, why does Rashi conclude with, so he began to say other things? Why is that relevant to the fact that Rashi is telling us that Jacob wanted to tell and imbue within his offspring days of Mashiach? And God said, no, that's enough. Why do we have to go on? And so he said other things. Rashi is telling us something. Rashi is telling us that God did not say no to Jacob. For God never says no to a prayer, especially the prayer of a righteous, one of our patriarchs. Rather, the Shekhinah withdrew. Now, to understand this, we need to know what in Kabbalah the Shekhinah referred to. The word Shekhinah means to rest. Shochein, he's resting. Now, that means the presence is here. Doesn't mean like resting, like taking a nap. Now, this Shekhinah refers to the linear, internal, conscious dimension of the divine presence. Thus, what's happening here is that God withdrew the Shekhinah, but he did not withdraw the encompassing circular presence. Thus, Jacob still had prophecy because the presence of God was there. But what God was doing was, God was telling him, you prayed for it? Of course the answer is yes. However, don't give it in the conscious internal mind, rather plant it in the subconscious encompassing mind. Now we understand why Rashi says, so he began to say other things. Rashi doesn't mean to say he changed the subject. Rashi said, oh, Jacob just heard from God, I shouldn't directly deliver the days of Mashiach. God took away, he withdrew the Shekhinah presence, the linear internal permeating. Rather, God left me here with his circular, encompassing, subconscious. Thus, I need to transmit this the days of Mashiach, through prophecies of the future of each of our tribes. Thus, Jacob's prayer was answered with a yes. Jacob succeeded what he wanted. And within each and every one of us is planted within us that gift, the days of Mashiach. And thus, for the Jew, Mashiach is not an abstract, wow, I can't imagine, no. Mashiach for a Jew is a biological child from a human man and a human woman, King David and his wife Bathsheba, from generations and generations and generations who will be gifted by God, just like Moses was a son of a human male and a human female. So too, this Mashiach will be a child, a, a, a human child of a human father and human mother who was gifted that gift 
just like Moses brought the external revelation of the Torah, Mashiach is going to bring the Agadita, the Milan de Chachmisa, the words of wisdom, the internal essence of the Torah, through which is revealed the internal essence of the soul, through which is then revealed the internal essence of God. All of this comes from the word va'agida, and yes, God says yes to every single prayer, especially those of the righteous. Now, in closing, let's get practical. The power of prayer isn't, it lies, I'm sorry, the power of prayer lies in the word va'yagidu. If you say your prayers, if you speak your prayers, that's not the power of prayer. If you tell, if you draw forth from your inner essence, not from your external doubtful will, but from your absolute surety, your absolute sureness of your inner will. Let me share with you a story. One time a chassid asked his rebbe, that in this Torah portion that talks about Yishmael being sick and Hagar and Yishmael prayed, and it says, and God heard the voice of the child. Not Hagar, but the child. So our sages have a rule, and I quote to you. The sick person's prayer is more effective than the prayer of others on his behalf. A chassid asks his Rebbe, Rebbe, if this be the rule, then why is it that your prayers for me are answered before my prayers for me? Legitimate question. The Rebbe answered as follows. He said, tell me, if you were drowning, you fell off a cruise ship and you're drowning, what would you tell God? Wouldn't you tell God, oh God, forget that prayer for wealth. Forget it. Just save my life. I forego every prayer. You can say no to every prayer I've ever made. Just save my life. But you should know, said the Rebbe, that a Rebbe, even when he's drowning, would never tell God, I forego my prayer for that chassid that he should be wealthy. And then the Rebbe concluded, that's why a Rebbe's prayer gets answered for you even before your prayer for yourself. So here I want to just talk to you about the practical concept of praying from the inner essence of your heart, the absolute, that which you see. When you just pray, you know, God, I really wish I could be rich. Oh God, I really wish I could do this. I really wish it would be nice. That's not va'agida. You are saying to God, you are speaking to God, but you're not telling God what deeply lies within you. When you tell God what deeply lies within you, I pray for this with all my being. I want this. It could be wealth, but I want it with all my being. I'm not uh, wishy-washy, uh, you know, uh, maybe, uh, no. I want this. I really, really, with certainty, want this. When a Jew prays from that level, God's answer is yes. However, like we just saw with Jacob and Moses, sometimes God redirects it instead of the internal linear 
God gives it to you, gift wrapped in the encompassing circular. Okay, bottom line, I'm still not rich, so what are you saying? I knew there's going to be a twist to this class, which lets God get out of really answering what, no, no, no. Let me share you what happens when God answers your prayer in the encompassing rather than in the linear. See, if God answers your prayer in the linear, you physically experience exactly what you asked for the way you asked for it. But if God gives it to you in the encompassing circular, God gave you a gift, which is in a gift-wrapped box. What do we have here? It's already in our hands. God gave it to us. However, we have to unwrap it. You know, I remember once reading one of the books about financing. It talks about a windfall. And by the way, in Israel, here we have Lotto. There they have something called Toto. They actually did a research that showed that almost everyone who won the Toto had to run away from Israel due to debts. <laughs> you were winning millions of dollars. So that book where I told you about the windfall, it explains that a windfall is very challenging because if you receive something when you're not prepared for it mentally, emotionally, or physically, it can backfire. So when God gives us what we prayed for, and God tells us, I gave it to you, but it's gift wrapped because your process of unwrapping it is where you develop yourself emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, so that you will be ready to receive the gift and it will be a positive experience. Thus, my friends, something that you pray for from the Agida. Not wishy-washy, I would, you know, okay. No, 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 I'm not foregoing this no matter what. I really, really want this, God. You will get it. And if you got it encompassing and you don't experience it yet internally, physically, consciously, now it's not no more time to nudge God. Why would you nudge God for something he already gave you? Rather, now it's time to start developing self preparing self, unwrapping the gift so that we can truly experience it. Have a wonderful Shabbos. May we pray from the depths of our being. May our prayers be answered and may we be able to unwrap the gift so that we can physically experience it in a positive way. Primarily, may we pray for Mashiach truly with all the depths of our heart and may God deliver it to us in a direct and conscious way.